So if you make a shiny app, you can use that as your portfolio project. Wrap your minds around this. When you put that portfolio project, say like on your website or on your GitHub or whatever, and you've got that web app there and somebody, the hiring manager or the technical person that's getting ready to review you and they're trying to collect some information, decide whether or not to bring you on for an interview, they get to your website. And just picture this for me. They see you've got two beautiful, shiny apps and they, they pull one up. And sure enough, one of them's a forecasting app. Sure enough, another one of them is one of your classification apps where you've like, you know, come up with a lead scoring probability. And they're like, holy cow, David, you got exactly what we're looking for, right? All right. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the Dedicated Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. We are going to talk about the top five skills that you need to become a data scientist, or if you're already a data scientist, to become a better data scientist. I have a special guest with us today, Matt Dancho, the founder of Business Science University. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring Matt on our virtual stage here. Hello, Matt. Hey, everybody. How's it going, Kate? Awesome. Awesome. Great to have you back on the show. I know, I think last time you were on the show, we were talking about time series and your time TK package. So that was great, but really pleasure to have you back on the show. Before we get into it, I think it would be great if you just take a few minutes and tell the audience a little bit about yourself, about Business Science University. Cool. Well, my name is Matt Dancho, and uh, and thanks again for having me, Kate. So I've been doing data science for business for a long time, and my background is more on, it's not computer science. I don't have a formal degree in data science, but what I did was... I actually learned and am a self-taught data scientist, and it took me a, a really long time. So what I did was when I finally broke through, I started to think, you know, hey, there's probably a lot more people out there like me, right? So I started developing a system, a program. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later today. But basically what it does is takes people like me who might be from, you know, a background that's totally outside of computer science or engineering or any of that stuff and converts them into a data scientist. And it does it very quick within six months. So that's a little bit about me, my company's business science. And uh, and yeah, so there we go. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I do want to hear more about how you started business science and just first wanted to check in with some of our live viewers here. We've got folks joining from Cambodia. Um, Adam says he's not a data scientist yet, but wants to learn more. We've got others who are uh, working with Tableau, but looking at other options like getting up to the data scientist level. Sure. Um, some are terrible at math. And so, so <laughs> some of those formulas, I guess, are very confusing. But also wants to understand methodologies and some are on the starting path. So I think most most that are joining us here are sort of at the beginning stages, uh, it seems Good. to me. So I think we can stay on that side of the conversation. Good. And Good. Yeah, Ravid's just saying that you create amazing courses. I, I agree. I've actually taken that course that we're giving away today, and it was a great starter for me in terms of learning how to even use R. I went from never using R or really programming to begin with. So that was a great course. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, that's great. It's super important to know where the audience is coming from. So if they're going to be more on the beginner end, we'll keep it right there. And we'll just make it comfortable for people who are maybe on the outside looking in trying to get break into data science, or maybe they've taken their first steps. And what they really want to do is kind of figure out how to streamline that path, make it happen a little bit quicker. So we'll talk yeah, about a lot of that. Absolutely. So yeah, the top 
five tips for becoming a data scientist. Can't wait to hear them, Matt. Yeah, we really had to streamline this down. Like you can't believe like there was 14 tips and I went or 14 things I wanted to go through. So, Kate, I wasn't going to try and go through all 14. We'll be here for, you know, six hours if we're trying to go through 14. Right. We streamlined it. We cut it down to the top five. What I want to first start off with is just kind of a case study. I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning from other people. And I have an amazing story that I have to tell you. So one of my students, David, he just increased his salary by $50,000 by becoming a data scientist. Now, he, he legit had an awesome job. He was working at the, um, I think, the University of Texas. And uh, he was an analyst there. And he recently, just last week, he got a job at Microsoft as a machine learning support engineer. So get this. He was going from, seriously, a decent analyst job, and he increased his salary $50,000 in a matter of just seconds by joining up with Microsoft and becoming a machine learning engineer. So what was remarkable about this story with David is that he actually did this in under six months. So you can imagine what I'm about to talk to you about today. It's pretty powerful stuff. So you definitely want to listen in. And I'm going to go through step by step because when I heard this story from David, I was like, man, I got to figure out what is David doing in order to be able to do this so fast, right? Right? Am I right? Yeah, right. Six months (laughs) is like nothing these days. I mean, six months passes for me. It feels like six days. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, And I can't I can't wait to hear what happened to David. I just wanted to quickly jump in and let you know that we've got a bunch of responses of folks saying they use R, beginning Python, some are Power BI and Excel. Excel and Python, some basic R, some Python. It, it looks like it's a pretty good mix across the board. So we've got folks from all the software that we're talking about now that, and some of the programming good. languages. Good. So I'm, I'm going to go through kind of David's step-by-step process. So this is good. And thanks for that, Kate, because whether you're learning Excel, whether you're learning Python, whether you're learning R, you know, as long as you can get the job done, the tools really don't matter. But I'm going to give you guys kind of some back room, back office kind of secrets about what he did specifically to help him kind of cut down on competition and then also learn the essential skills for the job because that's important. So before we jump into these skills that I'm about to talk about, what I want to do is I want to walk you through his process. So picture yourself right now and then in six months from now, you're a data scientist. What do you do step by step? Well, here's what David did. So six months ago, you know, before he even applied to that job at Microsoft, what he did is he had to figure out how he was going to learn data science. So the thing that he did first or that he had to do was he had to pick a programming language, right? So he had a couple different choices. You know, when you're learning data science, you know, your, your typical choices are normally Python or R, but And the logical choice, because what a lot of people do is they go out there on the job boards, right? They go see on LinkedIn, they see what companies are asking for. Are they mostly asking for Python? Are they mostly asking for R? So what I did was I actually did a little bit of research before this, and I found out a couple of things. First off, he was coming from an analyst background. So like me before, I was using primarily Excel. So he was using Excel before in his analyst position. And you got to think about 
okay, which of these languages that are out there are going to best suit your needs? R or Python? For me, it was always R back in the day because that was built specifically for statistics, whereas Python's more of a general programming language. So that's one, we'll give one point to R for that if we're, if we're keeping track of point system. But then obviously you go out there and, the, and what's the next thing you do? You look out in, on the job boards and you see, okay, what are companies really asking for? And you see this. So I did some analysis. I found out for a data science job with Python, you get around 21,000 hits. So 21,000, that's a lot, right? And then for a data science with R, I compared that and I saw, okay, there's about 8,500 or so hits. So not quite as much, about you know a third R versus Python. So you're initially thinking, okay, maybe I should be learning Python. Well, then what we started to do was we dug a little deeper because now you've got like, okay, I, R feels a little bit better because it's built for statistics. It's kind of like Excel that uses functions. Python's a little bit more code heavy. But Python is, is where most of the jobs are. Well, then what we started to do, okay, we said, well, what about the people that are applying to those jobs? What are they doing? So we found out this amazing thing. This is super interesting. 32 Python people for every one R person. So if you think about that, just, just wrap, your, wrap your minds around this. That's a you lot. Got, yeah. You got a lot of competition on the Python end that you're going to be competing with. In fact, for every one job that's in R, so there's roughly 2.4 jobs in Python, right? So R, Python, 2.4 jobs out there for every one R job, but there's 32 Python people, freaking huge compared to every one R person. So like the first thing that he did was he picked R because it gave him a competitive advantage. And that was one of the things that allowed him to get a job so quickly. So it's kind of a secret. It's not necessarily a skill, but it's like, if you pick right, you can set you know, yourself up for success. You remind me of, of sort of myself when I was an undergrad. I was um I was scheduled to graduate in 2009 with a finance degree. And for those who like lived through that and paid attention, that was like the height of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. With a finance degree, with the you know, I had the hopes of working for a bank, and there was a hiring freeze at that point. Yep. And I remember all of my college buddies, they're like, you know, I'm switching to accounting, like, you know, there's no one's gonna need this anymore. I'm like, okay, you guys go, you guys all go. I'm gonna stay in finance because there's someone's gonna need it, and that's gonna be me. So yep. um choosing the path of least competition that still has high demand and high value. I think is a, is a great idea. So go David. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he made, he made the choice with R that was one of, I think his better decisions. So the other thing too, is uh, I wanted to chat with you guys. I ran actually two surveys this past week. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to understand, okay, once you pick for Python, what do people then start to code in? Because that's the next decision you need to make. So, so once you decide, okay, I'm going to go at it with this one language. Then you have another choice. You have to figure out what's called an IDE. That stands for an integrated development environment. And all that is, is just a fancy term for, you know, hey, what am I going to type my code into? <laughs> right? Um, so, so, so in R, 90% of people are using RStudio, which is this IDE. I personally use it. So David picked that that RStudio IDE. And 
he's able to get his questions answered with that IDE. He's able to also communicate well with other people. Conversely, I asked that same question for Python. And I was personally shocked because I thought it was going to be like 90% Jupiter, right? Because like if R is like that, then probably Python is, is has a dominant IDE. But here's what makes it super challenging if you're getting into Python is, all right, I picked Python, but now I got to figure out an IDE and that survey results came back. Only 50% use Jupyter. Another 30% are using this IDE called VS Code. Now, I, I code in both R and Python. For Python, I specifically use VS Code, but 30% of people are using that. And then you've got another 14% that were using this the PyCharm or, or what's now called Data Spell. And then you've got another group that are actually using RStudio to code in Python. And these are more like the R programmers that are also learning Python because like me, you know, I was an R coder at first and then I switched over to Python to use that. Now I use both. So I'm what's called multilingual. And then what was interesting is, is then also in the comments of that, that poll, then I couldn't, you can only like, Kate, you know this, when you do a poll in LinkedIn, you can only pick four options. Yep. So, <laughs> So I was getting all sorts of hate, hate mail, not hate mail, but like, you know, people saying, why didn't you put spider in there? Why didn't you put data spell in there? Why didn't you do, you know, and it's like, guys, I only have four options. I, you know, I, I picked the four that I thought you might choose from, but like, so people were picking like, you know, dozens of others. So like that poll that I ran in, in R, it was like very, very simple. It's either, you know, it's 90% R studio, like landslide victory for R studio, but in Python, it was crazy, man. And people were like super opinionated. So it's like, how do you even talk? It's like you got all these different factions, right? So I think picking R was just like a competitive advantage for the job market, a competitive advantage because it just simplified a lot of things for David. And making that simple choice, it set him up for success for what I'm about to talk about next, which is the data science skills. Um, yes. So Before we get into um, data science, I want to ask the yeah, audience. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of them said R, a lot of them said Python. So I am mm -hmm. curious to know what IDE they're using. Just do a quick survey of our dedicated community here. So if you're sure. using Python, are you guys using Spider? What, what was the uh, some of the other ones, Matt? That Jupiter, Jupiter, VS Code, VS Code. Uh, PyCharm. Uh, R Studio actually supports Python now, so you can okay. if you learn R Studio, you can also code in Python with it. And then there was like Spider, and, and there was like a bunch of other like small ones that I had never even heard of. Uh, Data yeah, Spell is, is the new one. That people are so passionate about it, right? They're like, no, my thing is obviously better. And we've got some you know yes. comments coming yeah. in now. So we've got Jupiter, R Studio, Spider, VS Code, R Studio. So it does look like R Studio people are you know. All <laughs> Our studio, it's a bit more straightforward when you've got like 90% of people using this. And I wanted to ask sort of how do people make that decision? Is it sort of when you're taking a course or learning about it for the first time, they teach you in a specific IDE and then you're like, okay, I'm just going to use this. Or do you think people take the time to research what are some of the most commonly used IDEs uh, by organizations that they aspire to work for? Share some thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two there's two sides of it. There's like what you love to use, and then there's also what your organization kind of makes you use sometimes. Because like organizations have this kind of weird system where they want everyone using the same thing, and it's very cut and dry because that's supposedly better for teams. But like honestly, what I found is that the most highest performing teams that are out there, you're allowed to do kind of what you want, 
And it's that mixture of ideas and creativity and being able to use like kind of like a diverse set of skills. Because if you have like a team that's like super uniform and we all think like the same way, those teams aren't nearly as high performing. And there's been a lot of studies out there as to when you have a diverse team where they have R, Python, you've got, you know, gender diversity, you've got uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, diversity from diverse backgrounds coming in and kind of in this melting pot then you've got like skill positions that you could utilize. So I think there's like two kind of sides of it. Me personally, I always just use what I love to use. So for me, it was RStudio. And then also I'm, I'm using a lot more VS code when, when I do Python nowadays. Mm. But, um, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it all depends. And then it's also like what your organization wants you to use. So. Yeah, I think as a as a new programmer or somebody starting out in data science, I think that could be one of the more intimidating obstacles where you need to make this decision. Like, let's say you've chosen the language now. You're like, I'm going to do Python or R, whatever you end up choosing for whatever reasons that you've justified for yourself. And now you have to learn like, okay, now you have to make another selection. And it's sort yep. of... Doesn't stop at just R no, because then you got to pick an IDE. <laughs> So it's interesting that you brought that up. All right. So we're moving on to skill number three, right? We're going to data science now. Well, actually, I have five. Like I told you, Kate, before this, it was really tough for me to pick out just five. And I'll go through these fairly quickly. There's not going to be like, because I think once you get through that, like the hardest challenge is picking Python and and the IDE. But then once you like get into a rhythm. So Mm -hmm. this is what I have actually five quick kind of skills that, that David had learned. And okay. kind of in succession. And I'd love okay. to like chat with you guys about that. Yeah, go for it. All right. So this is an article I just put together. This is the one that I was talking about, David. But mm-hmm. this image here kind of captures the skills. Now, there's there's 14 different like kind of categories of skills. And then each category kind of gets broken up into more skills. And obviously, this is way more than what we can chat about today. But I wanted to let you guys know that this is actually available to you after this podcast and after this this conversation that we're having today, if you guys need to access it. And Kate, you can most certainly hand them out that link through your um, through your email. Yeah, I'll share it with everyone who signed up. And if you need the registration link, um, I, I'll put it in the comments now too, but it's in the description of the, of the show. If you wanna sure. Okay, cool. So, um, all right. So this article kind of encapsulates everything we're going to be chatting about. But what I did was I took those 14 categories and then I kind of like condensed it down a little bit. So the first one that I want to talk about today is this thing called data rank. And that was kind of the first step. And the reason I want to chat about this is because we all make a big mistake. In fact, I know at least half of you probably made this mistake because I know I did. So it's, you know, don't feel like it's your fault or anything. Uh, you know, it's just like naturally we as kind of analytical people and we're interested in, in doing some coding. The mistake that we make, we jump into machine learning too quickly. Okay. So let me back up a second because there's this thing called data wrangling. And if you've ever heard of data wrangling or if you've never heard of data wrangling, like all that means is you're trying to work with data and get it into the right format so you can provide some sort of insights. So the thing that David did was instead of jumping into all of the fancy machine learning and deep learning and algorithms and all that stuff that like I know I specifically, I, I dove right into that and I made a mistake. And that actually choosing data wrangling first and getting some of these foundational skills put together 
that, that like seriously helped speed him up because then when he get into when he got into machine learning, then he could uh, he could actually do stuff. And everyone knows that in machine learning, garbage in equals garbage out. So if you don't have good data, good data quality, your machine learning models, you can have the best machine learning you know algorithms in the world, but they're but they're going to produce junk if they if they're run on junk data. So that was the first skill that David really focused on in order to be able to kind of accelerate his journey. So that's why it's not taking him, you know, and he focused on it for about a month or so, rather than jumping into the machine learning and all the stuff and then having to go back, stop, pause machine learning, and then and then get into uh, to data writing. So does that make sense, everybody? Is that jive with what you guys have done before? Actually, let me ask this question. How many of you have made that mistake, jumped into <laughs> machine learning too quickly? I know yeah. I have, so I'm, I'm raising my hand to that one. I think a lot of people want to jump into that right away because of it sounds cool and it's lucrative and you're like, oh, I'm going to yep. make so much more money if I know all this stuff. Yep. But it is a process, right? There's a path yeah. to follow. You can't just jump in way ahead without without taking those first steps first. And I love the story you're sharing with um, an actual person. I think it's a lot easier yep. for the audience to to resonate with the story. Um, right. I really, really love that. Yeah, no, he, he's a, like, he's been a perfect example. And he was so excited when he reached out to me and told me about this job that he got. Like, yeah. he was excited. <laughs> and I was cheering him on, man. I was, uh, you know, clapping him on in the background. I was telling him, you know, how pumped I am for him, because that's what makes me happy. Honestly, it's, it's seeing, you know, students like Dave get their dream job and, and know that they're making the right decision. Right. Um, all right, second skill. So after he got data wrangling in the bag, he didn't jump into machine learning. He still waited a little bit longer. And what did he learn? He learned data visualization. Now, we have an expert on visualization on the call with me today, guys. You guys know who that is? It's Kate Stratton. Yeah. When you said data visualization, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I know this. This is my yes. favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's what he like. So what he did was he learned how to tell the story and, and Kate, from your perspective, and I know you've written books on this subject, and I know you've talked with a lot of like executives about like storytelling. Why is that so important? Why is that so crucial of a skill? Like, well, it's like running a marathon, right? People call this the last mile of analytics, um, mm -hmm. and I always picture somebody running a marathon that they won't get, let's say, paid for running a marathon, right. or they won't get their medal until they actually finish. Right. So you do all this work, this data wrangling, this the algorithms, the coding, all that good stuff in your IDE of choice, right? You, you've done all <laughs> that. If you don't visualize and tell the story to your leadership or whoever your end users are, you sort of crash and fall on your face and run out of water halfway through. You're never going to get to the end, which is that last time of analytics without having the proper data visualizations in place, the insights that you're sharing. And it's also has, you know, it has to get there in time. So if you run the marathon and it takes you six months versus six hours to get there, then, um, you know, it's no longer valuable. So that's why I love that analogy. But yeah, that's why it's important because without that, you're sort of doing it all for nothing. You might have fun yes. doing it, but there's, you know, it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. From the executive level, it's super critical to them. And I'll tell you this. It was super powerful in his portfolio. So he had to mm -hmm. create a portfolio to demonstrate his value. And when they saw this on his GitHub or, you know, on his personal website, they were like impressed that he had these visualizations and some of the stuff that he could do. So those people who you're going to be having to tell the story to, they're the ones that are oftentimes involved in the hiring decision 
So they're quite impressed if you put that in your portfolio and they can see you've got some data visualization skills. And for the portfolio, is there like a magic number? How many examples, data visualizations, how many should a person have? Because I'm assuming having a thousand different things might be too much and might be overwhelming, but having just one example is not not enough. It doesn't show enough skill sets. Yeah. What do you recommend? So I recommend, so two projects, that's all you need because like, so one project can have, you know, multiple visualizations to it. I'm a big fan of this, these things called shiny apps because those are actually like demonstrations of products that when companies see them, they're like, ooh, I want that. Yeah. And then as soon as they like connect that, they're like, oh, I want that. Then they're like, oh, if we hire the person who can build this, they can build these for us. Yeah. And then that's when like the light bulb goes off. So I, I think having two of those and, and shiny apps usually have a couple of different visualizations in them. You know, that's my recommendation. Don't go nuts. Don't try and feel like you have to have 10,000 different visualizations or 10,000, you know, different portfolio projects. Just have two, have two projects that have maybe a couple different visualizations to them, but like a sample of what you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. Okay. All right. So here's number three. Number three is machine learning. So once data wrangling down, once he got visualization down, then at that point, he was ready to move on to machine learning. Because remember, like I said earlier, garbage in versus garbage out. Now, here's a key advantage, though, that David did, which I think is really important for you all to understand. I fell into this trap back in the day. So there's the popular way, which is, you know, the popular opinion is spend five years of your life learning theory, learning algorithms, learning math, learning statistics, learning every other textbook out there, you know, deep learning, blah, 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 blah. That's going to take you five years. That's too long. Here's what David did. Is that not the way to go, Matt? (laughs) That's not the smart way. We'll put it that way, right? There's a popular way. Yeah. And what everyone says to do. And then there's the smart way. All right, let's hear the smart way. All right, here's the fast track. I'm going to give you guys a little secret. If you work on applying machine learning, like just like literally taking a machine learning model and figuring out how to experiment with it on your data, playing around with the little parameters, kind of adjusting them, tweaking them. And that process that you're going to go through, you're going to actually learn the algorithms. You're going to learn how to apply them. You're going to, by default, have to learn stats a little bit. You're going to have to, by default, have to learn about like some of these different algorithms, some of the pros and cons. And like, and you're going to see like through your own real world experience, because you're actually playing around with these things, you're going to see how they, they work and some of the, the pros and cons. So that sped David up so much that he was like literally four to six weeks machine learning, got this in the bag, at least at a a decent level, enough to kind of wow Microsoft in the interview. So remember, there's the popular opinion, which isn't the smart way. That's spend five years of your life. And then there's the fast way, which is what David did. And that that makes so much sense, right? Even with everyday things like working out, you can study theory and identify what each movement does to a muscle, but do 25 push-ups a day and you'll likely see results faster than just reading about it. You learn sort of what works, what doesn't, and you adjust along the way. And this is the other problem. So with that popular opinion, when you're learning the theory and stuff, like I find this so often, in fact, this was a little bit of myself when I was first learning, 
is I would learn something for so long and then I would never actually apply it because like we were just constantly feeling like we had to master the subject master. Oh, I'm not quite there yet. Not quite there. I can't, I can't apply it yet. I'm not there. Well, if you flip that around and say, no, apply it right away. I might get this wrong. I might make a few mistakes, but kind of having those those hurdles and those bumps and getting through them, that's what actually helps you learn how to apply these things faster. Okay. So question, machine learning is big, right? It's broad. There are lots of algorithms, lots of things to try and to learn. Yep. What do you recommend that people start with? Is it like cluster analysis, classification, regression? Like which way do they go? Yeah. So the things that I've used the most, so you need to learn three things, clustering, uh, which is really important for like taking your customer base and kind of figure out which groups of them purchase similarly. And that can be really powerful because if you know like which groups all do the same thing, then you can segment them and target them specifically with like special offers that are, you know, more likely to work, work out better than just like spamming everybody with like a single offer. Right. Right. So cluster analysis is important. The other one, regression, regression is very important. This is like where you're trying to predict kind of how like a forecast, for example, that's a form, a special form of a regression. We're actually predicting, you know, like what the value is at some future date, you know, in the in the future. The other one is uh, the classification. This is probably in machine learning one of the most powerful things because you can p- predict when you classify something, you're predicting the probability that mm-hmm. they fall within a class. So how I use this specifically in my own business is we actually take all of our email subscribers. And we classify them as to like who is is the likeliest to, to buy something. Mm-hmm. And then we can kind of put them in groups based on their probability. So it's called what's called email scoring or or, uh, or scoring. But you can do the same thing with customers. You can do the same thing with employee churn. So people who are high risk at le- of leaving the company. So yeah, those are the three techniques that are, are super important. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. And on the regression, you know, you said forecasting. So can we forecast the prices of real estate in the next few months? Because I kind of need to know what's going to happen. So that's actually my my fourth. Uh, you're leading me right into my, my fourth secret. Okay. Time series. Time series is one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, ways to save a company money. So get this. I've worked with many different companies. I work with Apple. I work with S&P Global. They're a big financial company in your neck of the woods, Kate. I've worked with data scientists all over the world. But when I work with these companies, and I actually developed, you know, we talked about this, I think, on one of my uh, other talks with you about my model time and my time TK packages, which are software that I specifically wrote to do forecasting, like at scale, lots, lots and lots of forecasts, right? So the thing is, is that a company like Walmart, they can make, they can save $50 million per year just by improving their forecast, like 5%. And I'm going to explain why. So Walmart, they have, you know, thousands and thousands of store locations in all of the cities across the United States. So anyone know how many cities there are in the U.S.? I don't actually. There's like 280,000 cities in the U.S. I would not have guessed that many. Yeah. So so what ends up happening is that's 280,000 stores that they have out there because they have to have one in at least, you know, one in each city, right? So then what, what happens is the next level. So then you say, okay, each store they have, can you guess how many, how many departments are in, in a single uh, Walmart location? Departments? Oh my God. When I go in there, you can literally buy 
everything. It's yeah. scary. That's yes. And, and, and depending on how they, they code these departments, you know, some of them kind of get pretty granular. So you've got like obviously sports equipment, you've got, you know, groceries, which are bigger departments, but then you got like smaller ones, like you know, parts of the retail. Like like they break yeah, up. Yeah. 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 Stationary. Yeah. So every, if every department store, we'll, we'll just say, Hey, they each have 30, they have 30 departments. And then with, when it, within each of those departments, how many products do you think that they have? Oh my God, the product of SKU, that's like... Yeah, SKUs, exactly. So you see, okay, if each each department has over a thousand products, so you're talking about 280,000 times 30 times a thousand, you're talking millions and millions of forecasts. And they have to know to that little SKU per store level, per, per department level, they have to know specifically what's when are the demands going to spike up and the more accurate that they can get with those, so a, just a 5% improvement in accuracy on average yeah. will save them $50 million or more per year. And just think about this. How much is Walmart going to pay for somebody? That I was going to say the them? value of their data scientists. Is yes. Really, really yeah. High. So they're, they're, prob- they're probably paying, you know, half, like for some of these like really good forecasters, like half a million dollars a year. And they have to have lots of different forecasters because just one person can't forecast, you know, right. millions and millions. So, so they have to have, have them kind of like seg- segregated geographically and so on. So anyways, time series, you learn time series, you're going to be really important, really valuable to them. So that's another one of the key skills that David learned. One question before we move on. So you said time series, yep. what about geospatial analytics? So Christian is asking, how do you advise to efficiently learn geospatial data analytics? So geospatial is another one. It's not quite as popular as time series. So time series is like measuring over time. What geospatial is doing is measuring by geography. And you can also you can kind of combine this to, so you got the temporal or time series and also the geographical and kind of combine those. Um, I would say geospatial is really important, but it's not quite in the top five is, is what I would say. At least that's not what I'm seeing. Okay. Okay. Yep. Good question, though. It's very, very good question. All right. This leads me to my fifth and final skill for today. So your models, and here's a secret, your models are worthless. You're probably thinking, what? Matt, you just talked about like how valuable this you know, time series model is. It can save Walmart $50 million per year. Well, yeah, that's true. But it's not going to do any, anyone any good if you can't productionalize it. So what that means is, next question is, what's production? Production is simply the idea that you can take your model and put it into a format that somebody else, like a business leader or a decision maker, that they can actually use, right? So the most common format for that is like an application. So a web app is what we call them. And a web app is just a kind of a fancy term for like you go, you log into your browser, you have like a URL or a, a website that you go to. And that pulls up an application like Airbnb, and it's got some drop downs where if you're looking for, I want to find a, a nice uh, rental for the next, you know, my, my next big vacation here in a, in a couple of weeks. I want to go, I'm going to pick that drop down. I'm going to select Florida because that's where I want to go. I want to select Fort Lauderdale. Then that's, that's a city. Um, I want to put my price range. I've got a few sliders in there. And then boom, pops up, you know, 50 different of the most desirable Airbnb locations in that area, right? So that's what a web app is. A web app does the same thing, but it's for business leaders to be able to use the the models that you do and the models run behind the scenes, but allows those 
business leaders to kind of select from the drop downs, right? And pick, you know, hey, this is which products I need to forecast. And this is uh, now I got to get my supply chain because I see that this product's about to spike. Uh, summer's coming and we know that that's a seasonal time of year. You know, people are going to be buying umbrellas. People are going to be buying beach towels. People are going to be, you know, looking for swim, swimming shorts, whatever. So that is exactly the same thing for a business application. So instead of like how we use Airbnb, these business leaders need to be able to use your web app to have all of those drop downs and stuff, right? So if we get that, the final piece is figuring out how to way to productionalize that model. And you do that through a web app. So the most common one that I use is Shiny. And that's mm-hmm. what David used. And here's a secret interview tactic. So if you make a Shiny app, you can use that as your portfolio project. So wrap, wrap your minds around this. When you put that portfolio project, say like on your website or on your GitHub or whatever, and you've got that web app there and somebody, the hiring manager or the technical person that's getting ready to review you and they're trying to collect some information, decide whether or not to bring you on for an interview, they get to your website. And just picture this for me. They see you've got two beautiful shiny apps and they, they pull one up. And sure enough, one of them's a forecasting app. Sure enough, another one of them is one of your classification apps where you've like, you know, come up with a lead scoring probability. And they're like, holy cow, David, you, you got exactly what we're looking for, right? This is why these apps are so valuable, not just from like the organizational standpoint, but like as soon as that, that organization sees you have solved the exact problem that they have right now, right? then that's a fast track to get an interview. And that's a fast track to get hired. And a great way to stand out from from the crowd, right? Because yeah. almost no who's, one's actually building. Who's building an app? Yeah, they're all they're all putting Jupyter notebooks of like you know thousands and thousands of lines of code. Companies right. don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to spend time sifting through your code. Yeah, they want to see what you can do. What come on? What are we going to get out of you? Right? Yeah, so. and you could do this in both R and Ch- R and Python, right? Because R's got Shiny, and Python yep. has the Plotly Dash. Da- dash, the yeah, Dash is the big one, and and uh, and also Streamlit. So again, in, in, in Python, the problem is you got Flash, Streetlit, Dash, you got, you know, half a dozen other frameworks that I don't even know how to pronounce. And, but in R, it's, it's simple, shiny. Right. You just learn shiny. And you're good. So we've got, thank you so much for that. We've got all the advice from you. Now we have a bunch of questions that came in. So we'll try to take as many as you can in the next like five, six minutes. Rapid fire. Um, we'll start with this one. Hypothetical question. Can a person upskill in both Python and R simultaneously? So I don't recommend it. I usually recommend learning one first, and then you can always pick up the second later. I specifically, um, I tried Python. Uh, That's where I started my career. And I made it about two months, and it was just too code heavy. Me coming from a business background, coming from Excel, didn't feel good at all. In fact, uh, this is what I see with a lot of students that eventually come to me. They have spent on average, one year learning Python, and they haven't ever applied it to anything. They still are not confident. It's a big thing. I mean, um, have you, Kate, you've heard of this uh, imposter syndrome, right? It's a huge epidemic where these data scientists that are starting out, they really um, lack confidence. They lack the, and I was there too, because when I first was learning, I was like, I was constantly self-doubting myself. I was saying, you know, things like, 
am I ever going to be able to, to do this? I don't have a computer science degree. Am, am I going to be able to become a data scientist who has to deal with code all the time? Right. And when I was learning Python, that's how I felt. When I switched over to R, it was more comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. And that is why I started to learn, you know, because it was very similar to Excel. It's it's very functional. There's functions in R, like right. some like mean, uh, like median that were very similar to like all the same functions that I was using in Excel. So it was just like, oh, okay, this is how we do it. And that makes sense. Like I actually personally tried learning R and Python at the same time. I've never had to use it either for work or for projects. I just did it for fun. And it was not easy and actually ended up in mostly confusion because I'm like, how do you import an Excel file here versus there? And they sort of started confusing them. But it's it, it's sort of like learning a new language, right? Yep. Let's say you're trying to learn Italian and Mandarin at the same time, but you don't yet know how to speak at all, right? So if you don't know programming at all, learning those two languages is a lot more difficult. But it's if you know you. one, you can, it helps to learn the other. Yeah. Order. And I will tell you this, I later on down the road, I picked up Python right. because that's what I, I needed to do. I actually needed to write a few, some software in Python. Mm-hmm. So I ended up picking up Python and it was so much easier once I had R down. <laughs> so again, you know, don't want to belabor the point, but like it was a big advantage for David to pick R. Like when he made that choice, when he picked the IDE, when he started simplifying everything that he's doing, just specifically focusing on these like key tasks that like the five you know main things and actually there was like 14 that he ended up learning right. now i will say this though okay i've given you guys a lot of good information i hope i hope you guys realize that in this in this talk but but i haven't actually told you how he learned it in six months tell us so, tell us matt so <laughs> so here's here's the thing here's the kicker guys so picture david David's a good decision maker, right? He's made all the right choices, picking R, you know, picking the IDE, picking, you know, streamlining his his stuff. So there's three types of paths that you can take, right? The first path, you could be, uh, it's it's what I call the hobbyist path. You can say to yourself, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take as long as I need in order to be able to learn this stuff." And you know what? The minute you do that, guess you know what you're you're likelihood of success drops down to it's about zero percent because if you aren't don't have a streamline if you don't have you know that motivation and that idea in your head and visualizing where you're going to be in the next few months then you aren't going to make it and i've seen this time and time again and i call them hobbyists they eventually quit and the worst part is is it's a slow quit because what they end up doing is they do this thing called plateauing and i'm sure you guys have possibly even experience this. I know I experienced it back in the day and it's not your fault if you have experienced this, but this is like, you know, what ends up happening is you get through that first week and you're like, oh, I've learned so much. And then you get to the second week and you learned a little bit less. And then on the third week, a little bit less and the fourth week, a little bit less. Right. And then eventually you aren't week to week and you get into a year and you look back and you're not very much farther than where you've been after that first month. Right. So this is what happens with most programs. And that's the problem is that they don't, they aren't set up for you to succeed. They're set up for you to kind of like, you know, have you subscribe to their platforms and, uh, and just basically take money from you every month for the, until you, until you eventually quit, which is like five years down the road. So that's the one path, the second path. And this is the path that I picked, which was, okay, I got a plan. Um, it's not a good plan. 
but I'm going to try and learn this on myself. And you know what? I'm going to learn it as fast as possible. That still took me five years. So five years down the road, but you know what? Hey, I eventually made it. So I'm pretty, you know, all right. It, it took me five years. Now, the problem with this is I had a crappy plan because I didn't know how to streamline everything and get to the finish line. And you know what this cost me? This cost me about $650,000 because if you think about it over, what? yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, if you think that the, the salary for a data scientist is r- roughly what, 100, 125K a year. So the problem is every year that you take longer, that's more, that's more and more competition is flooding into it. Yeah. And on top of that, me specifically, I'm foregoing that salary that I could have been earning which is like a hundred, you know, hundred K a year. And I'm just having my normal salary. Right. And this, and I see this time and time again. Now, at least I made it though. Right. Yeah. But then there's the plan that David had, and this is where it gets interesting. So he figured out a way to streamline it into six months. So remember, David is a, he's a smart decision maker, right? He recognized that, Hey, if I make an investment in a certain program that, if I, if it truly gets me the result in six months, it's going to be worth way, way more than my investment. So I had him on a webinar here a couple of uh, last week and he actually joined. It was an NLP webinar that I gave uh, natural language processing. And he, he jumped in towards the end of it. You know, I did my normal pitch and I'm like, Hey guys, here's my program. And he jumps in and this is what he says. He says, Hey guys, this is no joke. I spent $2,000 on this program. And he literally increased my salary $50,000 and it happened in six months. Think about that. Yeah, who, that's who, impressive. Who would make an investment $2,000 with a promise that six months from now, you're going to make a $50,000 bump in your salary. And right. you're going to get paid not only that $50,000 at the end of six months, but then in, in a year, a year later, and a year later, and a year later for until you retire. And the six months that he invests like 40 hours a week or what was his level of time investment? Because yeah, money is so, one thing, but it also yeah. takes your time, right? Yeah, yeah. So time time is is also a key thing. And I think it was like 10 hours a week that he's putting in. Okay. So we're not, we're talking, hey, this is pretty manageable. Now I know when I got my MBA, you know how many hours a week I was putting in? 20. And this is yeah. outside of work. Right. So 20 hours a week. So I was, I was working probably 40, 50 hours a week had an hour long commute both ways, had some late nights, but you know what? That MBA program that I was taking lasted two years and I was done. I got my life back. We're talking a quarter of the time, six months, six months to get your life back, half as much time invested, but just be consistent and you'll get a $50,000 increase in your, in your pay. That is the power of the program. So this is the offer that will help you guys streamline your career, get you that data science job in six months. It's the same thing that David took. This is how he did it. It's called the five course R-Track system. The cool thing is we have a link that Kate's gonna be giving you guys. So normally the program is 2,600 bucks, but because you guys are investing in your time today, you're, you're making investment in your future career. What Kate is gonna be doing let me pull this over, is giving you guys $500 off. And this is a big, big benefit. 
I'm just going to scroll down. So th this is what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of testimonials. Again, I'm a big fan of case studies, right? If I'm going to invest my, my cold, hard cash in something, I need this to be 100% worth it. Now, I know what we're going to be asking for is probably a little bit more than what you expected to spend coming on to a, a, you know, a webinar with Matt and Kate today. But here's the thing. If you read through these testimonials, you've got testimonials from Jeremy, who was able to land a data science job very quickly. You've got Justin here. He says that in less than six months from starting my first BSU course, fully transitioned into a role, not just as a data scientist, but as a lead data scientist, and his life is better for it. And this was at Northwestern Mutual. You guys, I probably don't need to tell you this, but lead data scientists, they make 160000 a year. So... These guys aren't going broke. You got Jennifer, VP of Strategic Analytics at J.P. Morgan Chase. Ben had two competing offers. Chris, he landed his the best. The competing yeah. offers are the best. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's that's a secret, another secret tactic. So if you guys are trying to get a data science job, here's what you want to do. You want to have two job offers at the same time right. because then you can compete them against each other and you can increase your salary. Uh, and on average, you can increase your salary 10% when you do that. Masataki, he landed a job. Mahana, he got a 40% raise. August got a 20% pay raise. So if any one of these happened to you, wouldn't that be worth it, right? Wouldn't that be worth it? I bet you love reading all these testimonials. That I you're do. Like, yes, I'm changing lives. Like, I love I it. I do. Matt, thank you so much for getting on the show here again. Um, as mentioned, we were going to send that follow-up email with the free cheat sheet, a lot of free advice from you. So I really appreciate you coming on and talking to the community and giving away all the, the free secrets that you've given us away. I think it's a lot, very a lot of secrets in there. Yeah. 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 I mean, for anyone who's like on the fence of what do I do? I think you've given them a lot of great next steps uh, to yeah, move the, them forward in their career. Yeah. Those secrets alone will probably get you down to two years or so, but it's still going to take a little bit of time. So yeah. if you want to get, get it down to six months, it's always good to get the structured support and a plan to follow because it, obviously you can Google a lot of this stuff, right? Yep. But yep. that's going to take you. That's what I so did. Many. Took me five years though. <laughs> yeah, right. If you've got five years to kill and you want to, sure, do that. But I do think six months can get you there fast. And I've taken your course. Like I, I don't bring people on to my show just for the sake of it. Like I actually really liked Matt's course and I was very new to programming. And I think it you simplify a lot of things that some people might think, like, oh, well, that would be common sense. Well, that was not common sense for me, right? So I was right. glad that you took the time to like, let's change this. And this is how we change like the colors here. I'm like, oh, okay, now I know how to do that. So yep. it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, we go in depth in every single one of these courses. Like I went in depth in the, like a lot of information today. Right. It's, it's like a hundred times deeper than that, but it's focused. Yeah. I use this thing called the 80-20 rule. And uh, I'm a big, big proponent of really focusing on the most important things. And then diving deep into those, that's that's what you end up getting. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. To the audience, thank you so much for your engagement. Uh, thank you for your comments, your questions, and your participation. It makes the show just a lot more fun that we can interact and talk to each other like that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kate. I really yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. See you guys online. All right. See y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.